Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. There is a recognition at both the state and the federal level that there is actually a connection between unmet social needs and costs. And I think one of the big reasons why the conversations around unmet social needs have gained greater currency is because of the recognition. I'm your host, Alan Weil. If you're a regular listener, you know that most of our episodes revolve around a particular study published in Health Affairs. But every once in a while, I come across a person whose experience and perspective as it relates to healthcare warrants an excursion from the constraints of discussing a single study. And I want to have a broader discussion. This is one of those episodes. I'm looking forward to spending some time with my guest, Dr. Julian Harris. Dr. Harris is CEO of Concerto Care, a provider of integrated care for seniors living at home. But I've known Dr. Harris, and if it's okay, I'll call you Julian, for a long time, and I've watched your evolving career with great interest. My goal for today is to trace that path with him and with you, my listener, to gain insight into how his varied experiences have shaped his perspectives on health and healthcare. Now, Dr. Harris has experience in the public and private sectors. Chief among those experiences is leading the health team at the White House Office of Management and Budget, giving him oversight of, get this, more than a trillion dollars of U.S. government spending, in Medicare, Medicaid, and myriad other programs. He has a special place in my heart, having been Medicaid director in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts since more than 25 years ago, I was responsible for the Medicaid program in Colorado. Dr. Harris's private sector experience includes past work at Google and Cigna and a current role as an investment partner at Deerfield. Dr. Harris is trained in internal medicine and primary care. He's practiced as a hospitalist. Uh, Julian, welcome to the program. Thanks, Alan. It's great to be here. So one of the things that I enjoy when I get to talk to you is the range of experiences you've had. And healthcare is so big and so complex. None of us really knows the whole thing. But those like you who've chosen positions that range across different settings, get insights that the rest of us don't have. And that's what I want to try to understand today is what's the unique experience and understanding you have having sat in the variety of chairs you have. So I'll start with where you are today. I don't want to do a deep dive into concerto care, but clearly it's where you've come to at this point in your career. Tell me a little bit about what Concerto Care does and why it was an attractive position for you. So Concerto Care does three things. One, we work with health plans and risk-bearing provider organizations to support the management of seniors and other adults with complex chronic health, behavioral, and unmet social needs. And we provide intensive in-home supports leveraging a tech-enabled platform and an interdisciplinary care team to enable those patients to achieve their health goals. The second thing is that we can also serve as the primary care provider of record for patients who have complex health uh, and other needs and similarly bring an interdisciplinary approach in that context as well. But in our second model, we are the primary care provider of record. And then the third area that we focus on is participation in the program for all-inclusive care of the elderly or PACE. I've always felt that PACE really is 
centrally an intensive home-based model that is augmented by things that happen in the pace center. But much of the work that enables adults over 55 who meet nursing home level of care to remain independent and in their homes actually, not surprisingly, happens in the home in the context of PACE. And so we see that as another core component of our offering. Just in that answer, I hear so much of what you've done professionally. Complex care, primary care, team care, technology, and then PACE, which is such an interesting model. It's been around for a long time, highly regarded, but not uh, scaled up the way many people who look at it say, gee, why aren't more people in PACE? Why aren't there more PACE programs? So I'm going to take you down a little, you know, walk of history. I'll go back to your time in Massachusetts with Medicaid. And um, I believe you were involved in scaling up of PACE in Massachusetts. Is that right? So Massachusetts has some of the most innovative PACE programs in the country, and we certainly worked very closely with those programs to support their efforts to continue to innovate in their care delivery model during my tenure there. We also did quite a bit of work as the country's first uh, capitated Medicare, Medicaid duals demonstration with CMS to also think about how we address the full spectrum of primary care, behavioral care needs and unmet social needs really much earlier than I think uh, sort of the broader conversations around unmet social needs that have taken place over the sort of decade since, decade plus since, uh, since that time. But I think one of the things that I learned during my time in Massachusetts was that there is something quite special about PACE. It really is the model that if many of us had an option for how we would like to receive care ourselves or what we would want for our parents or for our grandparents, and you have a chance to be exposed to PACE, I really do think it's a model that people would select. And the success of the program, not only in helping to optimize clinical outcomes and cost outcomes, but in enabling seniors to have the opportunity to socialize and to have the full spectrum of their needs supported in that context, I think is really a secret that shouldn't be a secret anymore. And I think that part of what we're excited to do is to help be a part of the effort to make PACE much more widely available and in places that other programs may not have gone historically. So for example, uh, one of our approved PACE programs is in uh, an area that uh, a number of the other sort of PACE programs uh, have passed over. And the community that we're serving was really excited that we saw the opportunity to partner with local organizations and to make the PACE model available and to help address not only the needs in that community, but to also take an affirmative uh, sort of approach to the partnership opportunity, but also the health equity opportunity in that market. So, you know, before we go much longer, if we're going to not have PACE be a secret, we should probably explain to some of our listeners what the key elements of PACE are. I hadn't thought I was bringing you on to be our PACE expert, but why don't you describe, when you say this is the model we would choose for our parents or grandparents, what are the primary attributes of that model that make you uh, reach that conclusion? Because I think you're right. So I think there are a few key elements that are worth underscoring. The first is that 
PACE programs were the sort of one of the original pay providers in some ways. So a PACE program is a Medicare, Medicaid, dual special needs plan. And so participants in the PACE program have their PACE program as their health insurer, but it also is a provider. And so in this context, we are the primary care provider of record for the patients uh, whom we, we have the privilege to serve. Medicare and Medicaid, and it's interesting to be having this conversation uh, less than a week after the 56th anniversary of Medicare and Medicaid, but Medicare and Medicaid at the outset were not designed or contemplated to sort of need to optimize service delivery for patients who were participants in both programs. And there's been a lot of work over the ensuing decades to think about how we work to optimize participation in both programs in ways that make sense for patients, for Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries ultimately, but that also makes sense for the state and federal government. And one of the things that's so exciting about the PACE model is that those uh, sort of integration points are intrinsic to the model from a benefit perspective, from a operational perspective, from an appeals and grievances perspective, sort of across the board. One of the other things that's so powerful about the model is that the provider has perfectly aligned incentives because they are rewarded for optimizing the quality outcomes and the cost outcomes of the patient population. PACE is available to adults who are 55 and, and older who meet nursing home level of care and provides an opportunity for them to stay in the community for as long as possible. The PACE sort of benefit structure offers a range of services that are broader than might be sort of made available in other contexts, but importantly are deeply integrated. PACE programs in general have interdisciplinary care team rounds where the physicians, the nurses, the social workers, the visiting nurses, the drivers who pick the patients up and take them to the PACE program are all on the call when there's an interdisciplinary team round or session and bring their perspective. So, you know, one of the classic examples that people point to in PACE is that the driver you know, may point out that Mrs. Jones or Mr. Gutierrez is walking a little bit differently on their way uh, from their home to, to the shuttle, or they may need more assistance, or maybe they noticed a change in their, in their speech patterns or a range of things that, you know, might be subtle, might be things that other folks would have picked up on, but may, may not be things that were um, as readily apparent or noticed on any given day. But that approach, I think, is something that extends uh, much more broadly. So that's a little bit about PACE. That's terrific. Um, you know, you mentioned that Massachusetts was a leader in sort of the financial integration. These opportunities, though, have been around for a while. I mean, we've been talking about coordinating between Medicare and Medicaid for decades. PACE has been around for decades. We we have the uh, Duals Coordination Office, which had multiple uh, options under it. You mentioned the special needs plans. I mean, it just feels like if we've wanted to do financial and clinical integration, there have been so many ways to do it, so many opportunities. And yet on the ground, we we still see relatively slow growth of those kinds of models. So what is it that uh, 
well, I guess I'd ask, are, are we at a tipping point? I mean, obviously, I'm playing into your own role in your company, but are we at a place where we could see significant expansion of these kinds of models and, and the kind of alignment you describe, which, as you say, does create opportunities for better care and financial success and all of the things we thought this integration was supposed to give us? I certainly hope so. I think that there is a recognition that with the right kinds of partnerships across different components of the care delivery system and the right kinds of financing structures in place, there really is a path to creating a very different model of care and in ways that enable all parties really to optimize for their respective goals, for patients to maintain their health and their independence for payers, whether they be states in the context of, of the Medicaid uh, portion or the federal government in the context of the, the Medicaid and, and Medicare programs to have partners who are really focused on this broad spectrum of needs that have been unmet both from a clinical perspective, from a quality perspective, from a operational perspective. And then I think increasingly recognizing the importance of unmet social needs is one of the things that, you know, feels like a differentiator over the past, I'll say sort of three to five years. Obviously people have been talking about it for a much longer period of time and we were working on it, you know, when I was uh, back in Massachusetts a decade or so ago. But I think that it's gained much broader currency and we're also certainly in the context of covid which may be another path that you that you want to to explore or not but um i think covid has unquestionably exposed the importance of thinking about unmet social needs the importance of thinking about health equity and all of those things have been uh, core to the ways that i've thought about what we have to sign up for if we want to optimize what we're trying to achieve for participants in these two programs and thinking about them holistically. Uh, and so I think that's a big part of what will determine whether or not these programs uh, not only have a path to scale, but have a path to scale in ways that achieve the kind of broader goals for the, for the system. Well, you did anticipate where I wanted to go with this because you mentioned in your uh, earlier description the role of equity. And I feel like we were in a period of increased attention, gradually increased attention to unmet social needs. Um, and then the equity frame has been layered over that. Um, there's a relationship between the two, but they're they're also quite distinct. And so I'm curious about how you think those topics come together, but also how they need to exist separately. I guess let me start with health equity. I think that, you know, in broad strokes, I think there is greater recognition that people's ethnic backgrounds, the languages that they speak, the zip codes they live in, their genders, their ability status, their sexual orientation, and other dimensions impact their experiences of the healthcare system, but importantly also impact the outcomes that the healthcare system uh, enables them to achieve as it relates to their health. And what's been interesting over the past few years is a greater recognition that while we talk about that conceptually and at a high level, that we have a lot of work to do to actually even collect data 
to better understand kind of the dimensions of the challenge. And so I think we've seen progress in a variety of components of the ecosystem to thinking about how we enhance data collection, but there's there's clearly work to do there. But I also think that there has, has been greater attention and focus on trying to identify real and actionable solutions to address some of the challenges which have have been features uh, of the of the healthcare system and the experience of the healthcare system for many communities, you know, since its since its inception. In the context of unmet social needs, I think one of the things that has been so striking is a recognition that while unmet social needs are tied to socioeconomic status, and I want to also make sure that we're that we're aligning around uh, ter terminology, but you know, some people talk about the social determinants of health. Um, I think unmet social needs has has gained kind of greater currency more recently. But people are in general talking about access to food, housing, transportation. Increasingly, I think people also recognize that social isolation, uh, the need for socialization is an unmet social need and one that we need to bring greater focus and attention to. These are needs that can be ties to socioeconomic status, but in certain cases can actually transcend socioeconomic status. You know, one of the examples that I use is that there are people who are, there are seniors who are middle class and who are food insecure and can be food insecure for a whole host of reasons. Uh, in certain cases, it's having difficulty finding a way to get to the grocery store. Uh, and not having access to transportation, so the transportation connecting to their food insecurity, having difficulty accessing the kind of range of, of ways that uh, one might have uh, food delivered to the home. It's sort of for people who live in this world, it's like, well, of course, what about this service? What about that service? But um, not everyone knows about those services. And, you know, as someone who grew up in, in Georgia and was uh, state 4-H president and very connected to rural communities in the state, you know, it, there is absolutely, um, you know, a need to think about how we ensure that people in rural communities in this country have, have access to not just the healthcare services that they need and deserve, but that their unmet social needs are addressed and that we're thoughtful about the unique challenges associated with addressing unmet social needs in rural settings. So, you know, I think that issue has gained greater currency in part because it is so pervasive. It touches every community. It crosses all sort of the, you know, sort of lines that we might think of. Uh, and, and really, I think there's significant opportunity. And we've seen greater focus on it. We've seen companies literally launched, focused on addressing unmet social needs as their core work. There are other, country, uh, other companies like Concerto Care, where it is a part of what we do. Um, but there are some companies that focus on it exclusively. And that, for me, is one of the the signs that that we're making progress. I think there's also a lot of opportunity to think about how we invest in not-for-profit organizations and community-based organizations in addition to investing in for-profit organizations and ensuring that we're strengthening the infrastructure there as we also think about addressing unmet social needs. Well, I want to bring in some of your private sector and uh, hard-headed budgetary experience as well so that we uh, look at that angle too um, why don't we do that after we take a short break 
Before hitting the floors of Congress, health policy begins in the pages of Health Affairs. Stay up to date with the latest research and insights by subscribing to the leading health policy journal. Subscribers have exclusive access to health affairs research, ahead of print articles, and resource pages. Subscribe today by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Julian Harris, CEO of Concerto Care. We're taking an excursion through his varied career. And before the break, we talked a lot about care integration and unmet social needs. You've also had an interesting private sector run here. Um, and you're involved in, as I understand it, some in investment side work too. I think to your days at OMB and responsibility for these huge federal budgets, um, so much of healthcare and where it's going is guided by dollars and cents. What's your take on how the private side and the budget side around uh, the government is thinking about trying to address these unmet social needs. On the one hand, some of them can save us some healthcare dollars, but a lot of those unmet needs are really expensive to meet. And it's not as if uh, we can just solve every social problem by paying for it out of healthcare. So where does, where does your experience take you on those questions? No, it's a great question. I think that there is a recognition at both the state and the federal level that there is actually a connection between unmet social needs and costs. And to be quite frank, I think the reason why the conversations are one of the big reasons why the conversations around unmet social needs have gained greater currency over the past number of years is because of the recognition that failing to address those unmet social needs actually is a driver of healthcare costs. So I think that connection is real. At the same time, it's not necessarily the case that at least as our system is currently structured that we have all the tools in the toolkit or that uh, there's alignment that healthcare do dollars should be used to finance closing all potential gaps in from an unmet social needs perspective so i think that the the tension that you that you highlighted is real but to start with there's low-hanging fruit and so one of the things that I've seen, and I think that there's a lot of power to optimizing, is the identification of resources that exist today. So access to affordable housing programs, for example, and being intentional to the extent that there is prioritization that needs to take place, being intentional around ensuring that patients that also have significant medical complexity or needs from a behavioral health perspective, that those patients are prioritized as we think about how we allocate resources from a housing perspective. And there have been initiatives at a state level to do that and partnerships at a federal level that have helped to enable that. So that's, that's an example. I think there have also been examples of thinking about the connectivity between healthcare programs and food security programs and Again, there are ways to optimize the coordination between those programs. We've seen examples of that being done more and less effectively. And I think that there, there are efforts underway to think about how to, to optimize that coordination between those programs. So at a high level, what I would say is 
starting with the current pool of resources, there are ways to organize them and deploy them more effectively than we do today before we spend an, an incremental dollar. It's, it's really sort of how the dollars are, are allocated and, and aligned in ways that make sense. I do think that there are broader conversations around how we think about housing in this country. And I think some of those conversations, like so many things in the COVID context, have been uh, have gained sort of uh, greater attention and and focus. Uh, and I think that, you know, over time, we'll see innovation in that regard as well. This conversation could be a very long one, but, you know, one of the ways to think about that is is through how we promote economic opportunity in, in communities where um, that has been not only a historic challenge, but is very much a challenge today. And I think that probably is uh, a topic for another longer, longer conversation, but one that I also have a lot of a lot of passion around. Yeah, well, I kind of want to take you there, even though it is a longer conversation, because I I always get nervous about the the low hanging fruit. Um, on the one hand, it's hanging low and it's there for the picking, and there's money to be made if you can. Uh, pick that with at, at relatively low expense and maybe save a few dollars, help a few people. I, I, that's, uh, that's very good. One of my, one of the, my favorite papers that we published uh, in the last few years is a paper looking at accountable care organizations and how they've addressed uh, mental health needs. Now we have a full body of literature that says unmet mental health needs are a big driver of healthcare costs, just like some of the social needs you describe. ACOs have financial incentive to reduce the cost of care because they can keep some of the savings. So, you know, conceptually, sort of at that high level, you'd say you'd think ACOs would would focus on meeting mental health needs of their patients. And this mixed methods paper showed, first of all, that they weren't doing much. And then when when asked, uh, I I'm going to paraphrase, but the answer is that's not low-hanging fruit. That that like that fruit is way up high in the tree. And so you talk about you know employment in underinvested in communities and you know Alan, housing. Actually, can I can writ we large. can we uh, pause on that topic for just a moment? Of course. So of course, I think that there are opportunities in that specific example from a design perspective to think about how you incentivize, if not require ACOs to be intentional in their efforts to drive greater coordination from a primary care and behavioral health perspective. There's also data around the impact of the collaborative care model. But if you're focused on doing that, then you probably should sort of think about designing that into the structure and the incentives of an ACO model. I can tell you certainly, you know, we are on the concerto care side, a participant in the CMS direct contracting model, which is sort of the most uh, kind of recent advanced evolution of the ACO structures. And we absolutely have a focus on primary care and behavioral health integration and have geriatric psychiatrists on staff and social workers and community health workers and others who help us think about how we promote primary care and behavioral health integration. So, you know, I think that there are, are ways to optimize that from a design perspective. But when you take a step back and you think about, you know, sort of the structure of a typical primary care practice or even multi-site practice, you know, it's sort of one model. But if you zoom out and sort of say, where is primary care behavioral health integration done more commonly, 
it's often in community health centers. And so, you know, I think that there are actually opportunities for us to think about how we leverage insights from that experience in the broader context of ACOs. But I also think if we're talking about patients who have severe and persistent mental illness, we also have to look at community mental health centers and ask ourselves why patients who are receiving more robust access to mental health services in many cases still have very poor access to primary care and are there ways for us to partner with and incentivize those community mental health centers to sign up for helping to close gaps on the on the medical side as well and this isn't actually hypothetical because it happens <laughs> there actually are community community mental health centers including some in Massachusetts uh, that do just that that actually have a presence for primary care on site the community mental health center is the trusted site of care but they ensure that their patients are receiving diabetes care and treatment for their COPD and, and a number of other complex medical conditions that often can go undertreated and be a major driver of morbidity and mortality for patients that have mental health conditions or substance use uh, conditions. And so I don't want to give anyone <laughs> a pass. I, I know you don't either. I don't want to give the ACOs a pass around that. But I think that people who are who are designing ACO models uh, have some opportunity to, to take those factors into an account to account from a design perspective. But I also think folks who are participating in them, you know, in certain cases need greater exposure to what it looks like to integrate primary care and behavioral health effectively. So I'm glad you interrupted uh, my little rant there, because I think what I'm taking away from what you're saying, and I, I, I want to push you to push me back on me, is, you know, the paper and the ACO model is is it's very broad. It it the signals, the financial signals, the care signals are very broad, and so it's not shocking, even though mental unmet mental health needs drive healthcare costs. That given the busyness of the day and the complexity of setting up an ACO, that you wouldn't necessarily focus there because you might focus elsewhere. Um, but we always get worried when our when our signals are too narrow because when we tell people practice this way or set up your model that way, people are like, "Well, but you know, I have a different model and this model works for me, and I'm not sure I want that model." But you're saying, I think what you're saying is, there's somewhere in the middle here where we aren't just saying, "Here's a pot of money, take care of a population, keep some of the savings if you can generate them." But that we're more directive about what our expectations are around the care model, or at least we set up opportunities where we're more directive. And that may be, it's the combination of the financial incentive and the introduction to an alternative care model that's more likely to change care. And if all we do is dangle out the incentives, what happens is people pick the low-hanging fruit and the fruit at the top of the tree it, it's hard and some people get there, but most don't. Is, is that a reasonable interpretation of what you said? I think that's a really thoughtful framing. I think it's a balance. So one of the things that we have to be careful about is ensuring that we are setting patients and the providers who care for them up for success. And that in part requires being intentional around what we measure and what the administrative burden is on the practices. 
I think one of the challenges in certain cases has been sort of trying to figure out, you know, what are not only the right individual better measures, but what are the right number of measures, whether those measures should be static and for what period of time, or should they be dynamic and should they evolve? And, you know, what is required and what is um, advised or suggested. And I say the latter piece because populations are different and have different burdens of disease in different parts of the country. The supply of providers vary meaningfully. We have real challenges with access to mental health services and having sort of an adequate volume of providers, but that distribution varies meaningfully from a geographic perspective. So I do think that there has to be, you know, quite a bit of flexibility for the providers to think about what are the paths to optimize care based on the patient population that they serve, where they are geographically, what are the available resources from a partnership perspective. I also think, you know, one of the exciting things about this moment is there are ways to think about technology in, in a different sort of uh way and to think about how we leverage telehealth or telebehavioral health, telepsychiatry. And again, you're, you'll hear me, uh, you know, sort of harken back again to the challenges that, you know, a rural ACO might face, or in certain cases, you know, urban ACOs might face uh, in accessing a finite supply in, in certain areas where, where there are a lot of people, uh, you know, seeking those limited resources. So, so I'm not actually proposing that we you know, create a structure that is much more elaborate and uh, sort of um, draconian, but instead that we're thoughtful around the goals that we're trying to achieve, that we put the right incentives in place, that we give the right kinds of guidance uh, and examples to organizations that may not have context for what good or great looks like. and you know, it's been my job in a bunch of different contexts to go and find good or great and to understand it deeply and to think about how to replicate it and how to scale it. I think that we could be much more effective in ensuring that the programs that we think are exemplars really do receive the attention and have the sort of um, platform to provide context for folks who may be earlier on their journey and may not have kind of the exposure to what optimized models can achieve. Well, that does make me wonder. You've had a stint at uh, Google. You were at Cigna. You know, there are various ways to replicate, to educate, to incentivize. And of course, you've been on the public sector side too. I realize this is a really broad question, but what is your sense of the role of the payer or the I don't even know what to call Google, the information company or the government, which you've certainly been in, to create this structure. What, how do we divvy up these responsibilities so that each part is doing the best it can to contribute to uh, the knowledge sharing and the incentive setting so that we get more of the good stuff? There really is a role for all the players in the ecosystem. I like the way that you, that you frame that. One of the things that I've seen play out in some pretty interesting ways is the deployment of learning collaboratives. 
And these are organizations that are bringing together very experienced players in a particular area of focus, other folks who were earlier on their journey. And there are really frank conversations around what's going well and where there are opportunities for improvement. You know, there's been, I think, quite a bit of research sort of outlining the strengths and weaknesses of the ACO model, for example, uh, and some some critiques, some of which I agree with, others, you know, sort of maybe not completely, but this sort of effort to think about how we rigorously evaluate these programs and ensure that they are focused on achieving the cost and quality goals that really drove their establishment, I think is critical. And to continually make the programs better. You know, I think that the direct contracting model really is an important evolution and leverages, you know, sort of key lessons learned from the ACO models, but it's not perfect. Uh, and I'm sure that we will hopefully continue to learn from, from that model over time. Beyond the kind of sharing in the context of, of a learning collaborative and sort of thinking about how when a payer, whether that be a state payer or the federal payer CMS uh, in the Medicare context and partnering with states for Medicaid, I do think it's actually really important to learn lessons from the private sector and from private sector health plans. A lot of innovation is happening, and I think a number of them really across lines of business with their commercial populations, their exchange populations, their Medicare and Medicaid populations are thinking about creative partnerships with providers, thinking about how to align financial incentives, in certain cases, creating their own collaboratives. I've actually you know, witnessed organizations that bring together some of their ACO or ACO-like models to share best practices, to learn from each other. And those things happen formally, but once you sort of put people in a room, uh, you know, in today's age, people are gonna find ways to continue to, to engage and to share ideas offline. One of the things that's excited me the most, I'd say over the past, you know, five or seven years has been to observe the responsiveness of the, the private sector and of the investor community to gaps. So thinking about unmet social needs and then seeing people make investments in companies that are really tackling unmet social needs in creative ways. So, you know, some of the kind of focused companies in that space, ones like Unite Us and Aunt Bertha and NowPow, there are others, but that have sort of unmet social needs at their core, but then partner with a number of other folks in the ecosystem. When I think about, you know, sort of specialty areas of focus, chronic kidney disease and ESRD are significant health challenges, major drivers of healthcare costs in this country, and also areas where there has been less innovation from a payment perspective and from a care delivery model perspective. And the private sector has answered that challenge by establishing new companies that are focused intentionally on addressing the challenges of that community. So companies like Somatis that really do take an intentional focus to ensuring that patients have access to an integrated model of kidney care, but also are, are taking seriously, again, the unmet social needs of the populations that they serve. And I should note that I'm an investor in Somatis and very proud of that company. So I'm optimistic that we're going to see more and more innovation. One of the things that I hope to see, and you heard me allude to earlier, is 
a path to thinking about how we not only invest again in new companies, but for the important roles that key not-for-profit organizations play in the ecosystem, certain community-based organizations and others that we're thinking creatively about how to invest in those organizations as well, because we depend upon them. You know, companies, the companies that I just mentioned that focus on unmet social needs, a significant part of what they do is help people navigate to not-for-profit and community-based organizations, but those organizations aren't necessarily receiving you know, the kinds of investment that the, that the for-profit organizations receive. And so I think that is an area where public-private partnerships, I think, could play a big role in ensuring that those downstream service delivery providers that are not-for-profits and that might benefit from not just capital, but also technical support. I think there, there's real opportunity there, and I hope that's something that we see more of over time. Julian, I remember uh, sitting down at a table with you at an uh, American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation meeting somewhere out in some beautiful spot and just chatting. And this reminds me that we could go on. I could listen to you and engage with you for an extended period. It's great to get your different perspectives. I appreciate the optimistic note uh, toward the end. And I I hope you're right that uh, we can find a way that some of the resources that flow in through those private investments can make it into that nonprofit infrastructure because we do, in many respects, take it for granted. And again, one of my favorite papers in health affairs, of course, they're all my favorites, but one of them is uh, is a paper that looked at uh, contracting between the health sector and the social sector and how uh, the leaders of health and social enterprises really think about these contracting opportunities differently. Their, their business models are different. The language is different. The, the data infrastructure is different. And, and somehow, if we're going to do all of this, we're going to have to uh, make it work on both sides and not just uh, think of it as healthcare uh, sort of taking advantage of a structure that's been put in place. Um, anyway, it's great to take this excursion with you. Uh, we'll do another. I hope uh, someday I will continue to watch your career with interest. And uh, it's great to get the insights you have in the the healthcare sector and the different dimensions and angles that you've been able to uh, look at it from and work in it from. So, Julian, thanks for being my guest on Health Policy. Thanks so much, Alan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to a health policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great morning, day, or evening.